This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Hi, it's Jen White. Before we start the show, I want to take a moment to thank you, our 1A listeners, and anyone listening who donates to public media. After all, public media means that you, the public, support it. Everything you hear from the NPR network really does depend on your contributions. And for anyone listening who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a great time to get actively involved in creating a more informed public. That's our whole mission at NPR. That's why we're here. With 1A, you're part of the conversation. Your donation helps 1A bring you not only conversations that matter, but also stories, guests, and surprises that lift you up. To help this work keep going, please make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite station or stations in the NPR network. What really matters is that you're part of the community that makes this work possible. Listener support is a powerful resource. It takes all of us doing what we can, when we can, to keep this free public service going. So please, give today at donate.npr.org slash 1A. Thanks. Egg freezing, or oocyte preservation, was once considered an experimental procedure. But since the American Society for Reproductive Medicine dropped that experimental designation in 2012, more people are putting their hopes of parenthood on ice. We believe that your job should offer family-building benefits for everyone. Introducing KindBody, a new generation of women's health and fertility care. That was an ad for Kind Body. It's a New York-based fertility startup with a chain of sleek-looking clinics across the U.S. There's been a 400% increase in the number of people who have frozen their eggs in the last decade. That's according to the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology. Employers like Walmart and Starbucks now offer fertility benefits to help cover egg freezing, even as wages remain low. Fertility industry startups are also capitalizing. The fertility services market is expected to become a $90 billion industry in the next four years. That's according to estimates from the business research company. But what are the physical, emotional, and financial realities of egg freezing? And how accessible is it? We'll take a closer look at those questions after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Joining us for the conversation is Shara. We're using just her first name to protect her privacy. She froze her eggs at 35 and is one of 26 women who shared their experience with Allure magazine. They published a series last month about the realities of egg freezing. Shara joins us from New York. Joining us from Chicago is Dr. Amanda Adelia. She's a reproductive endocrinologist and assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at University of Chicago Medicine. And joining us from San Francisco is Dr. Eleni Joswa. She's an assistant professor of reproductive endocrinology and infertility at University of California, San Francisco. Thank you all for your time. Shara, why did you decide to freeze your eggs? What led you to that decision? Yeah, so I went through a breakup in the summer of 2020, peak pandemic. Suddenly I found myself single again, 35 years old, and not really knowing what the future of dating and relationships looked like during that time. Um, And I really use it as a time to just sort of be like, okay, well, what can I control right now? Um, I had seen an influencer on Instagram share her experience freezing her eggs with Kind Body, and I was like, this place looks very uh, sort of approachable, less uh, intimidating. It seems like it's sort of easy to just like make an appointment online. And I I looked into it, made an appointment, went in, um, and the rest is history. Dr. Adolier, what exactly does the egg retrieval process entail? How does it work? Yeah, so it typically takes about one and a half to two weeks uh, where you would be using injectable medications to help stimulate the ovaries to mature more eggs than you normally would during a menstrual cycle. Typically, you have one egg that becomes mature and then ovulates or releases. In this case, we're trying to rescue some of the eggs that would normally kind of just die off that month. And you do that using these injectable medications. And then ultimately, when those eggs appear to be ready, um, Um, Most people would have a procedure under anesthesia, wherein then an ultrasound is placed in the vagina, a needle is placed through the back of the vagina to the ovaries to remove the fluid from each of those fluid-filled sacs called follicles that each have an egg inside of them, and then we remove the eggs, um, and then they can be frozen by an embryologist. Dr. Jasso, we're discussing social egg freezing. What does that term mean? It's uh a... Important to recognize it's actually a term that we're trying to move away from in the setting of the actual indication is to offset the risk of a disease. Infertility is a disease, whether it's related to age or otherwise. And so historically, the the use of the word social cryopreservation has been to differentiate women who are freezing eggs because they want to mitigate that future risk of age-related infertility from other women who find themselves in situations like new cancer diagnoses, facing gonadotoxic treatments like chemotherapy that may affect their fertility. But these days, you know, our professional society is trying to move more towards planned oocyte cryopreservation or planned egg freezing as just a way to offset the risk of a future disease, a preventative measure. And have you seen an increase in people interested in this option in recent years? Yeah, absolutely. You know, where I practice out here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, certainly we see the influence of accessibility with some of the um, big tech companies covering these benefits as you introduced in this session. And so we certainly have seen a 
burst of interest and activity and women who are becoming progressively younger and coming to us uh, for for egg freezing. Ishira, what were some of the conversations you were having with yourself or maybe people in your life about this decision? Yeah, you know what? I didn't really, I kind of kept it to myself. It was during the pandemic. It was sort of an isolating time. And I did admittedly kind of keep it on the hush, uh, aside from like a close inner circle. Um, Not really because I thought it was taboo. It was just like I wanted to go through it first before I really shared anything about it. Um, I I wish I knew about it when I was younger, but the reality is I could not afford it until I was in my mid-30s. So that really is the challenge that I think a lot of women are facing of, you know, you will likely have a better outcome if you do this when you are younger, but you may not be in a financial situation to do so until you are in your mid-30s when it almost feels like it could be too late. Now, Dr. Odolia, you referenced some of the medications that are used for the egg retrieval process, injectables. What medications are patients taking? So depending on your physician and protocol, you might have a lead-in or what we would call primings that might be birth control pills or estrogen pills or something of that nature for just a few weeks. And then um, with the actual start of the egg freezing process, the ovarian stimulation part, usually you'll use two different injectables that kind of mimic the hormones that the brain makes to stimulate the ovaries and then eventually um, add in a medication to keep you from ovulating. Now, these things can be tweaked. Um, there are you know, a handful of medications on the market, but um, at least in the U.S., most practitioners will use some combination of those and they'll be personalized based on one's ovarian reserve um, and other perhaps medical factors. And are there side effects potentially for these medications? What are, what are some of the things people need to weigh? Yeah, so certainly there can be the side effects of the injections themselves. You can get a site reaction, some redness, some bruising, some irritation. Um, depending on one's ovarian reserve, you might start to feel bloated over the course of um, the stimulation. Um, some people experience mood changes. Those are all you know, fairly common um, side effects. Dr. Joshua, going through this process doesn't guarantee a successful egg retrieval. How do you need to weigh that as you're thinking about this as an option? Absolutely. That's such an important point. I think understanding that this is not a guarantee. I th- as a physician, one of our worst nightmares is to think about individuals changing their lives, assuming that they have a family in the bank and making different decisions, assuming a guarantee. So we have counseling tools from great studies that our colleagues have done to try to provide some sort of estimate of based on how old you were when you froze your eggs and how many eggs you have frozen. What are your chances? What are your chances of having a baby in here um, or maybe more than one baby? And we try to be really upfront about the fact that there's never a guarantee uh, in anything, biologically speaking. And so acknowledging that and for an individual considering egg freezing, thinking about, hey, I'm 30, maybe I'll readdress this in three years when I have more clarity around my future trajectory versus, hey, I'm 38 and I want four kids. I'm looking at the clock. This is something that's really much more important to me are all the kind of individual factors to consider. We're going to head to a quick break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and 
snacksing? Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Shira, before the break, you mentioned the cost of freezing your eggs, and we've heard from people that it can be pretty expensive. How did cost factor into your decision-making? Yeah, I mean, I sort of did a little bit of, you know, research to see would it cost me this, the same no matter where I did it, and it did sort of appear to be that way. Uh, my insurance did not cover it. My employer at the time um, did not offer fertility benefits, so I was really paying out of pocket. Um, I decided that, you know, this was investing in myself. It was something I was going to do. Um, I actually ended up doing it twice as well, just like the caller, because I didn't have great results the first uh, go around. So I did it in September of 2020 and then again in December of 2020. So, you know, all in, that was around $25,000, which is, is not pocket change. Um, And it is the type of thing like, you know, I would entertain doing it again if the costs were not as high. But for now, I do feel like I've sort of spent this much, have a certain number of eggs on ice as a result of that. So I do kind of feel, you know, content with with how things are. Dr. Adolier, 21 states in D.C. have laws requiring some coverage for um, infertility treatment. That's according to the National Infertility Association. But if someone is taking advantage of, of egg freezing as a way for future family planning, how often is that covered by insurance? Um, so, yes, there are several states that have mandated fertility coverage. So that means if you encounter the experience of infertility, you're trying to get pregnant and you can't, um, many insurances will be required to cover your cost of care to some extent. However, if you're thinking about fertility preservation or egg freezing, um, that is typically not covered by most insurances unless your employer specifically has a carve out to cover it. And Dr. Joshua, how much does this process typically cost? Great question. It can vary to some extent, but I think the numbers that Shira quoted us are pretty realistic. You're looking at ten to $15,000 a cycle when you factor in medications themselves can cost $4,000. And so you have the process of, of the egg retrieval, but then you have the storage of whatever is gathered, and that may be a cost people aren't factoring into this. When we talk about the preservation piece of this, Dr. Adolier, what should people think about? 
Yes. So most uh, most folks might experience pain around five to six hundred dollars a year um, to keep your eggs stored. Um, and the other part I think is important to emphasize to people is. Okay, so you froze your eggs. Let's say you do want to come back and use them in five years, seven years, something like that. To use them, you need to do IVF, in vitro fertilization. So there is still going to be that added cost at a later date to actually create embryos and to um, have an embryo transfer and potentially get pregnant. So it's sort of delaying that, that final cost of IVF, but it's still there. Uh, Shira, how are you thinking about that part of this experience, that you went through the process of freezing your eggs, but this isn't the last step on that journey for you. Yeah, it's really hard to say because I think, you know, another part of it is you you don't know if you'll need them. I might not. I mean, there's a chance I will, but there's also a chance I, I I might not need them. So I haven't really thought quite that far ahead to that next step. Um, so I think that's sort of like a bridge that I'll cross when I get there. Well, we're getting questions from you. Teresa emails, my 15-year-old daughter has a medical condition that can sometimes come with premature ovarian failure. Some women with this condition freeze their eggs based on tested hormone levels. However, my daughter has always maintained that she does not want children. I believe her and support her decision, but I worry that she might change her mind when it's too late. How do I best support her through this decision? Dr. Joswell, I'll come to you first. Any advice for Teresa? Oh, wow, Teresa, as a mom, that's so hard. I would say, you know, she's still 15, but she's in charge. So to have those open conversations and to try to even consider potential for changing your mind or anticipated regret is important, maybe just to get the information to make an informed decision. But, you know, my kids are one in three, having them turn 15 and having those conversations is a little bit beyond me too as a parent. Dr. Adolier, what would you say? Gosh, I I echo what Dr. Joshua said. It's a really tough situation to be in. Um, In in my in my particular kind of niche, I, I do have an interest in fertility preservation for medical conditions as well. Um, I see, you know, young people with a diagnosis of cancer or with um, gender dysphoria. And the reason I bring that up is so I do see some adolescents and young adults and at least in my experience, it's pretty age appropriate to not be very interested or excited to think about family building and the future. Um, It might be worthwhile to have a sit down with a reproductive endocrinologist and just talk through what might it look like if they decided to freeze their eggs um, for the future and at least, you know, have that additional understanding. Um, But know that I think it's probably reasonably age-appropriate if they're just not interested right now. Shira, how are you reflecting on your decision? I'm really glad that I did it. It's just something that I'm not really, you know, thinking about or worrying about anymore. I've seen so many people that I know or, you know, on social media since I did it in 2020 who have done it and shared their experience. But for me, I'm really glad that I have been, you know, that I shared my experience with Allure because I think it's it's so important for people to hear from real people about their real experiences versus, you know, a lot of the influencers who are sharing their their experience, it's maybe it was paid for um, 
or they're getting special treatment or they're, it's sort of glamorized. So I think it just is so important to like hear the real deal um, from people who have done it. And I'm, I'm glad that I've been able to sort of influence some of my friends to do it. So I feel, I feel really good about kind of where I'm at and that it's something I was able to kind of check off the list for now. That's Shara. She froze her eggs in 2020 and is one of 26 women who shared their experience with Allure magazine. They recently published a series all about the realities of egg freezing. Shara, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We got this message from Blair in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who writes, At the age of 31, I decided to freeze my eggs. I had a lovely experience and consider myself fortunate. I had financial support from my family where I could not afford this luxury on my own. I consider this entire process as fertility insurance. At the time, I found it emotionally taxing to have to do it on my own. But looking back, I'm thankful my reasons were for the what-ifs in life and not because of infertility. Dr. Joshua, Blair mentioned that the process process can be emotionally taxing. What are some of the unique emotional challenges of this process? I'm so glad you asked that. I think this has been a focus of my research and my interest for more than five years now. And I think historically the narrative build egg freezing as this kind of insurance transaction. You come in, you set submit a check, and then you've got some eggs on ice for future. But what we were noticing in our day-to-day practice taking care of patients is that for individuals, it's much more than that. And this is great that Allure has done a segment in NPR now. You're lifting up the voices of these patients because for a long time when egg freezing first rolled out societally, the narrative of whether it was right or wrong or these tech companies, are they good or bad, Um, excluded the voice of the patient. And so some of our research has focused on the the emotional impact of egg freezing for women. We found uh, five years ago, we published a study that reassuringly, most women feel really happy, have the same sentiments of increased control, happiness that they froze egg, irrespective of whether or not they use them in the future that Shira is expressing to us. So it's great to hear her echo the general satisfaction. But there is a non-negligible risk of decision regret where people are not universally empowered and happy and great feeling really satisfied that they froze their eggs. So we kind of dug into that and are trying to better understand what are these risk factors for decision regret? Um, Is it just satisfaction? Is it something related to the experience? And how as physicians can we better inform with information and counseling ahead of time to make sure everybody knows what they're getting into, but also support emotionally along the way, as I think for a lot of women um, with the Growing up in a Disney narrative of childhood, they don't expect to find themselves often single and freezing eggs in their 30s. And so that can be a moment of reckoning emotionally for folks. And there are a lot, as you mentioned, social pressures on people to have children. And when it comes to biology and the biological, the so-called biological clock, how much of that pressure is biological reality? Dr. Adolier? There absolutely is a, a biological foundation to this this clock. So for humans, um, we're born with all of the eggs that we're going to have. And there is a, you know, a decline in the quantity of eggs over time. And for most people, at least in the U.S., by the time you get to about 51 and a half, the number of eggs left is so few that um, you don't ovulate anymore, and that's menopause. 
And a lot of people, I think, kind of harp on the quantity issue and the egg loss issue, which is absolutely something to consider, but really more important if you're thinking about using assisted reproductive technologies. What people don't always understand is that there's an egg quality issue. So all of the cells in our body have 46 chromosomes, which are the long strands of DNA that tell our cells what to do, except for mature sperm and a mature egg, which each have 23 chromosomes, such that when they come together, the new embryo has 46 chromosomes. The issue is the eggs that we're born with actually have 46 chromosomes, and it's only when we ovulate that egg you know, and perhaps that's, you know, 35 years, 40 years later, um, that that egg completes this biologic process called meiosis um, so that the final egg has 23 chromosomes. This process works pretty well in our 20s to early 30s, so most eggs you ovulate during that time are going to be chromosomally normal. But once you get into your mid-30s and beyond, there's a linear um, increase, or in other words, a steady increase in the proportion of eggs that are ovulated that are going to be abnormal chromosomally speaking. And those embryos or those eggs, once they're fertilized, become abnormal embryos, which often don't implant or lead to a live birth. And so as as time goes on, as we age, the, the likelihood that you're going to be successful decreases because egg quality goes down. I'll take a quick pause here. When we return, we hear from a legal expert in reproductive health. We discuss the lack of regulation in the industry and whether the Dobbs decision on abortion could impact egg freezing. Back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Let's get back to the conversation and add another voice. Mary Ziegler is a legal historian and professor of law at the University of California, Davis. She specializes in the law and politics of reproduction. Mary, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So how regulated is the fertility industry, Mary? There, there are some significant gaps, and part of it is just a question of which entity is in charge of regulating what. So I think the FDA has the biggest role, but there are gaps in regulation there too. For example, there's no entity that regulates the storage tanks where frozen eggs are housed. That's led to some real crises in recent years where there have been uh, failures of freezers that have destroyed both eggs and embryos that people were relying on. And there was sort of a, a question of where the buck stops and maybe the buck not stopping anywhere. Um, equally, I think it's not clear how people can pursue relief when these kinds of crises occur. So there are a lot of entities that have some kind of hand in regulation, but there are lots of loopholes and gaps, I think, that create issues sometimes for patients that they don't anticipate. We got this email from Zach in Virginia who says, what protections are there for women freezing their eggs? Are there any privacy concerns? Who owns the eggs? And what can the company do with the eggs you don't use? So let's take those one at a time. Mary, first, what privacy protections are there? So again, there are not a lot of um, the sort of single answers to who has oversight, right? So there's some oversight from FDA, some oversight from the CDC, um, and there are a lot of other entities like the American Society for Reproductive Medicine 
that set standards and protocols that may provide privacy. I think um, there are also often contractual privacy guarantees, right? So you may get uh, a guarantee from the entity that you store with which you store your eggs, but there isn't really a one-size-fits-all answer to what kind of privacy you can expect because the, the nationwide guarantees that you get from CDC or FDA aren't really about privacy. So CDC, for example, is mostly charged with collecting data on how well fertility centers perform, not with privacy. And and in terms of the ownership question, who who owns the eggs, Mary? Well, the person doing the donating um, owns the eggs. Uh, fertility centers that would house eggs wouldn't have ownership in them, and that's why when there are these freezer disasters, plaintiffs or people who've frozen their eggs can try to pursue some kind of relief. The The problem is not that they don't own the eggs sometimes, it's that the legal system doesn't have a ready-made language for what went wrong when people have eggs that they've frozen that they're relying on that all of a sudden aren't available to them anymore. Now, Dr. Jocelyn, when someone goes through this um, retrieval and freezing process, you may end up with with no eggs to store, or you may end up with, with a lot. What happens to a person's eggs if they're frozen but not used? That's a great question. These are all conversations we have ahead of time with disposition discussions. So folks are informed that they will receive an annual effectively egg rent storage fee bill uh, until they choose to dispose of them in a few different fashions. Most people who don't come back for their eggs will just thaw and discard them. There are also options to donate um, either to individuals or research as well as disposition scenarios. And in terms of eggs being transferred from a facility in one state to another, Dr. Adolier, how easy of, of a process is that? Well, from a medical standpoint, it's fairly straightforward within the U.S. Um, you can use a courier system that can transfer um, the eggs. There are specialized groups that do this. Um, but perhaps... Uh, Mary Ziegler might have some additional thoughts on, you know, the legal landscape of that. Right now, it should be fine, but um, who knows what the future holds. Well, Mary, that that takes us to these questions about a post-ops world and how that's changed, if not the legal landscape, the legal conversation around eggs. What do you think? Absolutely. So what we're really talking about with the legal landscape post-ops is not necessarily eggs themselves, but the embryos that you would need to create to complete IVF, right? So again, if you're freezing your eggs, you're at some point, if you're using the eggs, going to have to go through IVF. And that's where potential complications lie. Some people in the anti-abortion movement hold that the disposal of any embryo um, is, or at least should be illegal, right? That an embryo is a person with rights. And they advocate, for example, uh, transforming the way IVF is done so that every embryo you create, you have to implant, or that it's impossible to store or dispose of or donate embryos because we wouldn't be allowed to do that with another person. In other words, lots of steps that would make IVF either considerably more expensive, considerably less effective, or both. Potentially even some, some have considered or proposed banning IVF altogether, although I don't think that's that likely. None of this is something we're expecting to see immediately. But none of this is also off the table 
long term, especially in very conservative and politically uncompetitive states, where we know these ideas have been floated and are being discussed for the future. We got this question from Emily who says, after quitting birth control in anticipation of menopause, my mom conceived me naturally at the age of 44 and had a healthy pregnancy. I'm only 30, but I would like to conceive throughout my 30s and 40s. What role does genetics play in egg viability? Dr. Adolier, what can you tell us? Wow. Well, that's a, a fascinating story. And, you know, a spontaneous pregnancy at 44 is not that common. Um, you know, it's it's possible that there could be some genetic heritability in terms of kind of ovarian reserve, like how many eggs you have and the the rate of decline, but the quality issues remain. And that isn't typically something that's inherited. A 40-year-old person typically is going to have about 60% of those eggs or then embryos um, that are generated be chromosomally abnormal. And that really still remains the biggest predictor of um, whether or not somebody gets pregnant, particularly with um, assisted reproductive technology. Um, so I, while that is wonderful and, you know, I like to tell patients, listen, you know, this in science, nothing's guaranteed, nothing's 100%. And although I might say that it's highly unlikely that you might, you might get pregnant on your own at 44, it happens to somebody. And so that said, I can tell you the probability of that happening is, is, is low. And I probably would not advise to make decisions about your own family building based on that. But, you know, whether or not the, it, there's some potential, you know, heritability around ovarian reserve, that that might be true. I don't know. We got this comment from one of you. My daughter came out as gay at 15, non-binary at 18, and wanted to start testosterone. I offered to pay for egg freezing before tea treatments as I was unable to have more children after having them at age 38. They got 10 usable eggs. They said they most likely won't want children, and if they do, will adopt. I just wanted to give them options I didn't have. Dr. Adolier, briefly, what are the gaps when it comes to who has access to this process? I love this question. It's a big passion of mine, um, improving the uh, access to care for fertility. So affordability of fertility treatments is one of the biggest hurdles, and I think the one that's the most tangible to folks. Um, and, you know, I think some of the costs around assisted reproduction are, are ambiguous and, and sticky, but um, some of them are, are real. It takes a high-complexity lab and people who have their PhDs really to carefully manipulate these very precious cells and ultimately embryos. And so there are going to be some pretty significant um, elevated costs throughout this process. And that is something that many people will have trouble um, trying to um, achieve. But there are other obstacles to access to care. Another one would be education. And a lot of the listeners today have echoed this, that they were not aware of, you know, the possibility of egg freezing or the decline in um, egg quality over time. And so I think it really falls to our, our medical system. And that really is going to start with the frontline primary care providers, general obstetricians and gynecologists, and then, of course, certainly reproductive endocrinologists and, and other folks to 
to educate about, listen, when do you want to have a family? What does that look like for you? And really start that conversation early so that people have the opportunity to um, make the decisions that are going to be the best for them. There are other obstacles to care, including certainly differences in outcomes from fertility treatments by race and ethnicity, um, and also um, differences in accessibility, whether or not people have insurance coverage for fertility care. So there are many um, obstacles um, related to uh, fertility care. Uh, and the last one I apologize, I wanted to mention is the regional access. Many um, fertility centers are based in urban uh, urban communities and people who live in suburbs or rural areas might have to travel quite far in order to be able to access fertility care. Well, we'll leave the conversation there for now. That's Dr. Amanda Adolier, a reproductive endocrinologist and assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at University of Chicago Medicine. Also with us today, Dr. Eleni Joswa. She's an assistant professor of reproductive endocrinology and infertility at University of California, San Francisco. And Mary Ziegler, a legal historian and professor of law at UC Davis. She specializes in the law and politics of reproduction. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Planet Oat. No deep thinking here. Planet Oat oat milk is rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. Visit planetoat.com for more. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.